Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, what a delight today to learn from my very close teacher and mentor, Rav Yitz, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Yitz Greenberg. Um, who is uh, calling this evening in from Yerushalayim, from, from Israel, um, and someone who I believe to be uh, the greatest living Jewish theologian um, and, and leader. Um, and there are decades and decades of highlights to, to show for that. But I'm going to leave the intro to my colleague, <laughs> Rabbi Yaakov Chaitavsky, who leads the BMHBJ uh, Synagogue in, in, uh, in Denver and is one of our crucial partners at VBM. So hi, Rav Yaakov. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever, wherever you may be here in New York. It's uh, afternoon. I'm still on a little vacation, but it's, I'm delighted to be here. And um, if, there, if there is any room on the landscape of American Jewish life for a VBM, the Valley Beit Midrash, and the work that it does, it's because of the work that was done many, many years earlier, a profoundly forward-thinking work of our special guest today, uh, Rabbi Dr. Irving, also known as Rav Yitz uh, Greenberg, who is not only uh, a Jewish scholar and leading theologian of our time and author of many books on Jewish ethics, Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, not only is he the founder of CLAU, the National Jewish Center of Learning and Leadership, an organization with which I had done some work in the past, He's also a, a pulpit rabbi, he was an associate professor of history at Yeshiva University, and he was actually the founder and chairman. He was one of the first to bring a Department of Jewish Studies uh, to the City College of the City University of New York. And he has smicha from Yeshiva Beis Yosef and a PhD from Harvard. His uh, work and his influence in the world of Jewish pluralism and his reaching out to Jews and seeing the value of Jews and the Judaism practiced by Jews that are not always orthodox. Um, and he taught us to not talk about them in terms of, oh, they're not yet orthodox. They each have a certain Yirat Shemaim. They each have an Ahavat Shemaim and Ahavat Yisrael. And uh, he, he taught all of us uh, how to do the work uh, that we as Orthodox rabbis do and that many who are not Orthodox also do together with those who are Orthodox. And there is so much that could be said. I mentioned before that uh, we could spend an entire session just introducing uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. And without any further ado, we're going to get to the issue at hand and have our expert today share from his vast experience and knowledge. Rabbi Greenberg, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but there were some good, wonderful introductions because what I wanted to say about both Shmuley Anklowitz, who is really one of the great dynamic figures of our Jewish world right now, and of course about Yaakov Khatavsky, what I plan to say now will sound like a payback in reciprocal washing of hands. So I won't say it, just to say that it's a privilege to work with both of you and to and to share this audience with, with both of you. <clears throat> I want to 
share an approach or an interpretation of Jewish living, in part in the hope that it will not only be useful to individuals or for that matter to rabbis and communities, but because it could be a guide to face some of the questions of change and development that we're all facing together also. So let me start at the beginning. Judaism is universally recognized as one of the most influential, if not the most influential religion of all time. And that's in partly because you're not only talking about the religion of 14 million Jews throughout the world, but its conception of life, its conception of existence, its conception of how one should live is also very much has framed, if shaped, and shaped the message also of Christianity, which reaches 1.9 billion people in this world, and Islam, which reaches 1.1 billion. So when you usually talk about Jewish influence in the world, people say, yeah, well, that's because of the idea of monotheism, one God, which in fact those two religions have taken and shaped in light of Jewish teaching. Having said that, I want to call attention to another Jewish theme of our religion, which I believe has had even more influence because it's not only shaped Christianity and Islam, but in secular form has shaped modernity, modern civilization, a civilization which is the dominant civilization for two billion people on this planet and growing and developing. I'm speaking this about Jewish vision of this creation of this world, of this planet, being repaired, or what has become very popular in contemporary Jewish theology as tikkun olam. It's the Jewish teaching that this world, the world of senses, the world of this life, not the future world, can be and should be, will be repaired to the point where it fully upholds life, and in which the world will be, will be kind of turned into a paradise. It's very far from a paradise right now. But according to Judaism, by a partnership, it's a partnership between God, the divine, and humanity. It's, Jews are part of that partnership. Maybe I'll sometimes like to say we present ourselves as a, as a lead partner or as a managing partner or as a pacing partner. Be that as it may, it, it's not just Jews, it's the whole world of humanity together with God. And it's also a partnership between generations because what I'm talking about can't be accomplished in one generation, in one lifetime. But according to Judaism, the calling of humanity is to carry on this mission. And each generation does what it can, make its contribution, and passes on the vision, the brief, the covenant, the partnership to the next generation. And if we keep doing it, we will get there. At least that's what the Jewish teaching is. And what do I mean by we will get there? Well, the Torah starts with the idea of creation, chapter one of Genesis. Creation is one of the central themes of Jewish religion. But when the Torah speaks of creation, and you read that first chapter, it's not really about the process of how the earth came into being, of how life developed, because we know now certainly that we would have a scientific, very different language. But the central narrative of the creation, according to Judaism, I would argue that first chapter in particular, is not so much how the world comes into being, but that the world is a creation, meaning it's not the 
outcome of a blind physical process that has no values and no goals. But rather, this is our teaching. It's the creation of a universal force, a life force, that has a vision for it. And what the first chapter in Genesis gives us is how that vision is, not as it is now in the world, God has put into the world rhythms or movements. The first movement being from chaos, from the Big Bang, where there's such violence and force that nothing is stable and nothing exists yet, to Shabbat, to a world of harmony and order and life. The second rhythm built into nature, built into creation, is the movement from non-life to life. And here again, this is not always self-evident because mentally we think of the world as going from life to death. We're born, we start to die. But if you see the world from the divine perspective and the perspective that we as humans are supposed to take up and act with in accordance with, the world is actually moving from non-life to life or to, or to put it in our contemporary language. For 13 billion years, there was no life on this planet. It's a billion years plus that the first cell, first cell, one cell life appeared. And since then, the billion years plus that has passed has been a riot, an explosion of life because the world in fact is moving toward life. Even though death is universal and powerful, the power of life injected into reality by the divine and sustained by the divine. But that power of life exercised by living things above all by humans, is moving toward increasing life in the world. And the third great rhythm of this creation, as it repairs and as it moves forward, is that the quality of life develops also. If you look at the Torah's version, in the first three days, there's hardly there's no life. Maybe in day three, there's a kind of a limited form of life. And not until day five do you get the blossoming and in days five and six, toward the end of creation of the process, the world fills with life. So these three rhythms, A, why is the Torah telling us these three rhythms exist? Because we as humans are supposed to imitate and join them. If the world moves from chaos to order, and that means from Big Bang to galaxies, to stars, to planets, and within the planet, we know of this planet, but undoubtedly there are others throughout this vast universe where the development of life takes place. So the world moves again from non-life to life. And as life develops, it has to be treated with special respect and special dignity. The Torah tells us that when God sees the appearance of life in this world, God's reaction is by Yavara, God blesses. God bless them. That's God's reaction to life because God loves life. And God responds each time, Puravu, give me more. Increase life in this world. To sum this up, here's the three rhythms built into nature which we're supposed to detect and follow. And that brings me to the verse from Isaiah that I, maybe you can even put this on the, on the uh, screen so everybody can see it. Isaiah interpretation. Isaiah's interpretation of the human role in creating and completing creation. Says Isaiah, I'll translate the English, read that rather than the Hebrew. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, 
God himself who shaped the earth and made it. God established it. Here is Isaiah's interpretation of what God has in mind. He did not create it to be void, a waste. It was not created to be empty. He shaped it, Lashevet Yetzirah, God shaped this world to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no, these are the words of God. This world was shaped not to be empty, even though it is beautiful and has many good contents. It was to be filled with life, Lashevet. And again, this is not just a theoretical statement. What does it mean to say that this world should be filled with life? As I said, for one, for 13 billion years, there was no life. And then life itself develops. What's the human role? Well, I give you the mitzvah of pruravu, the mitzvah of be fertile and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. That verse is addressed to all human beings. And that's why the Torah's description, it starts with fish and then it goes into amphibians and birds and animals. And so far, the most developed form of life that has emerged thus far, the human being, who the Bible says is B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. Meaning that, we, what does it mean the image of God? God is not an image. The Jewish tradition says that God has no image. What it means is that humans have gifts, capacities that are God-like. God has a consciousness that understands, shapes the whole world. An infinite consciousness. Well, human beings have a finite consciousness that can study and understand existence. It's human beings' minds that discern that this world is 13 billion years old when there was no life and certainly no humans to watch it. Arno Penzias won a Nobel Prize, an observant Jew, won a Nobel Prize for detecting the sounds that were made in the aftermath of the Big Bang by a machine so that human minds have been able to reach back billions of years now that you've seen the stories of the Webb telescope, reaching back billions of years into history and absorbing the light that came from the initial um, stars, the initial light points in this emerging universe. We have that capacity and that is to be used to understand and to develop it. And similarly, we have God's powers of power. God can generate enormous power, lightning bolts, powerful volcanoes, but we have the capacity to generate engines of thousands and tens of thousands of, of horsepower and power, again, to use these to repair the world. God has the capacity to love, infinite love, Tov Hashem Lakol Rachmova, Komas of God, loves all God's creatures. God is good to Adam because God has mother love for all Rachamim, for all of God's creatures. So we as humans have these capacities in finite form, but we're to use them and we're to use them to create life. So the first commandment of Puravu is simply this You as a human being are responsible, it's a choice to increase life or to continue life in this world. So that Gemara says, what does that mean to fulfill the mitzvah? Well, the answer is, if you have two children, then you have fulfilled the commandment of continuing life. That means when you die, life will go on because you will have provided a continuation. 
But then the Talmud says, consider that Isaiah told us La Shevet Yatsara, it was created to be filled with life. So if you only have two children, then when you die, there will be just as much life in the world as you represented as a family. Well, that's not good enough to fill the earth, says the Talmud, under the rubric of La Shevet, of settling the earth, we have the responsibility, we have the responsibility of having yet another child to tip the direction toward filling the world with life. Now again, let me make a quick tomorrow, you can raise it in the question and answers. Number one, what if I can't have a child? What if there are physical limitations? What if there are mental limitations? My answer, of course, is that this is a commandment that you can fulfill if you can. And if you can't, you have the joy, the capacity to adopt somebody else's and thus nurture and continue life. Or you have the option of teaching, of developing the mind, the heart, the capacity of a child. So again, the continuation of life is assured. So that's the first responsibility of humans to join in to assure the quantitative continuation of life. But we have a deeper responsibility, which is to simultaneously increase the quality of life. And I'll come back to that in just two minutes. So the first part of the partnership is the responsibility to fill the earth with life. Now, again, you'll say, what about the problem of global warming and the strain of overpopulation? So the answer again is in part, this is a problem that grows out of success that humans have in fact increased the presence of life in the world. And here, of course, the answer becomes, we are partners but we're responsible for the repair of the world. If life overloads the world, if life leads to overfishing and destruction of species, if the increase of life leads to the uh, increased numbers of people who are in poverty and can't be helped, then it has to be corrected in the form either of restrictions of, res of voluntary restrictions of population or in the form of developing greater efficiency and greater use of resources to prevent that. So it's again, keep in mind, it's a partnership. It's not simply mastery and use, it's a partnership in which we fill the world with life, but we take the responsibility of further repairing the world. As I said, it's far from that. In the ideal world, says the Torah, human beings would be treated as of infinite value. The image of God means that you have the dignity of infinite value. Unlimited amount of money is worth being spent just to protect your life. Nobody's life should be cut short. Nobody should lack for medical insurance or treatment. No one should lack for home or shelter because of poverty. So in fact, the Torah tells us not only to increase life in the world, but to take responsibility for repairing, overcoming all the enemies of life in this world. If, uh, if, if, um, if Alex would show on the screen, I would just have a very brief I'll point of attention. The, the prophets tell us that in this world, we are in this world that we are working toward as human beings, that we have to turn as partnership members to create a messianic age in which the dignities of human life are realized, in which all life is treated properly, the infinite value, the equality of each person is honored. And to do that, what do we do? Well, we overcome poverty and hunger because poverty is the enemy of the quality of life. 
It's not just a lack of resources, it gives no capacity to send our child to education or one sends children to child labor because we're poor. So we have to overcome poverty. We want to continue the next page. We have to overcome hunger, which denies the value of human life. We have to overcome oppression on the second page. We overcome oppression because right now we're living in a world in which everybody is not equal before the law. And even in democracies, even in countries like America or Israel, which try to be democratic, the reality is that the poor don't get as much justice as the rich. They don't have as good a lawyer. They don't have as good an access. So the messianic age, we will get uh, the messianic leadership will judge the poor with equity and decide with justice for the lowly of the land and so on and so on. In other words, the goal is to create a world in which we overcome oppression, in which there's no discrimination, in which equality is not violated by any form of prejudice or distortion or abuse or racism or sexism or anti-Semitism. Keep going. We overcome war for the same reason, because war is the enemy of life. Even war, which is justified now, is we would have to use war or Ukraine defending itself against Russia, or we are defending wars in which Israel has defended itself against enemies and sought to wipe it out. These are legitimate wars, but the messianic dream is to overcome war, to create a world in which there's no need for, or there's a balance of power that prevents war, because wars wipe out life, infinite value, unique, equal people are wiped out. And keep going. So we keep, we overcome sickness and death. The Jewish vision is, in a perfect world, we would have to overcome human disabilities. Isaiah speaks of the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be understood. The lame shall leap with like a deer. Because if you think about diseases, how about Alzheimer's, which robs people of their life and of their dignity, of their memory, of their uniqueness. So the part of our vision is to upgrade the world in every area, medically, economically, politically, scientifically, so that every human being will be treated as infinitely valuable, as unique. That's our long-term goal. If you go on uh, for the moment, I'll, no, let me go back now to the first page. So that is the messianic vision. But, but how do you live in the interim? Because it's, it's a wonderful vision to say, we'll have a world of complete equity. But what do you do right now in a world which lacks equity? How do you live? What do you behave? And so this brings me to the generalization about Jewish living, which I feel is the most important point I'd like to leave with you tonight. In Deuteronomy 29.15, Moses stops to summarize the whole Torah which he has taught, so-called 613 commandments. There are probably more, but what does all that up to? So what is the whole Torah all about? This is Moses' summary. See, I place before you today. The Torah is offered every day. It's trying to guide us in everyday living, in living in an imperfect world, which we want to move toward perfection. See, I place before you today life and good and death and evil. And he comes back to that, but notice the twinning, I'll come back to it in a moment, life and good, death and evil. So again, he repeats it three verses later. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. 
And here's the Torah's guideline. Choose life so that you and your children will live. Now, what does it mean to choose life? What the Torah is trying to say is that we live unthinkingly very often. But if we would stop and think and consider our life and our behaviors in every moment today, in fact, in every moment of life, in every act of behavior, there is a choice between life and death. And here is Maimonides and the guides comment about this. Notice how Moses has put together life and good as a twin, death and evil as a twin, says Maimonides. What Moses is trying to tell us is that everything in the Torah is telling us choose life means you're choosing life and good in every act of good. That's the definition of good. And in some way, it represents a choice of life. The definition of an evil act is in some way, some aspect, it's a choice of death. In good, it's a choice of upgrading the quality of life. In evil, it's a choice of degrading or diminishing the quality of life. And so what the Torah says, don't live unthinkingly. Stop and consider every human behavior. And here's your guideline. In this moment, in this behavior, how do you maximize life and minimize death? How do you maximize upgrading the quality of life and minimize the quality? So let's take some personal examples because we all live every day. Let me start with eating. When you want to eat or you need to eat, if you don't need, you're there, you've chosen death, so you have to eat. But the question is, in your choice of eating, do you maximize life that way? So let me take Hashrut as an example. What Kashrut says is that according to the Torah's vision of the sanctity and the value of life, ideally, you should be a vegetarian. In other words, you should not live by putting to death another living organism. And in fact, if you look carefully at the Torah, in the Garden of Eden, in the opening chapter, human beings, all animals, are supposed to be vegetarians. And then when you look at the Messianic picture, Isaiah says, in the Messianic age, we'll all be vegetarians. In fact, even as he puts it down, the lion, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion will eat straw like the cattle. In other words, the Torah's vision is of a world ideally where creatures do not live by destroying or eating up the life of other creatures. Now, how come we, therefore we have kosher meat? The, the Torah's answer is, in the interim, when you eat, the ideal is to choose life by being a vegetarian. Now the next, if you can't live up to that, or in the case of human history, where in fact animal proteins were a very important part of the human improved diet ability to live longer, then the Torah says we permit meat with restrictions. In other words, we maximize life, in this case, not by the ideal, which is no killing of living organism, but minimizing it. We allow only a very limited number of species. And when you take those species, you're supposed to slaughter them in a kosher way, meaning minimize their pain. And if Shmuley has done wonderful work on making us all aware that the kosher industry is not living up to this standard and that it, many times in industrial agriculture or meat preparation, 
there is a violation of human, of animal dignity and values. So, but this is not the ideal. The ideal is that in the limited number that you're allowed to eat, you take them painlessly under circumstances that are not shocking and frightening or tormenting of them. And then again, the, the more they develop the life, the more Torah restricts them. So for example, in fish, the only restriction is species, whereas birds and animals, you have to slaughter them properly. And most of all, finally, you can't prepare them with milk because milk is the symbol of the life of mother's milk giving life and you are eating meat, which is a form of killed animal, and therefore you have to reduce it. And again, these are not fixed and final conceptions. This is the guideline. And I think, again, Sholi has given us some wonderful examples in terms of veganism, in terms of moving now, because we now understand that raising cattle for meat causes many problems in the environment, methane gases, and so on. So is, here's a chance to dynamically maximize kashrut by moving back to its higher ideal of vegetarian or vegan kind of choices. So that's eating, but not finished. If you think through the implication of that this is to choose life, you now have, for example, the idea of echo kosher, of recognizing the impact of our eating on the environment. So you don't, you should not be prohibited to eat fish that are overfished because the species are being killed. So you are taught not to eat when we have industrial agriculture that debases or torments the lives of animals. And this is an extension and guide to in every generation where the go is halacha, Jewish law is about maximizing life, minimizing death. But if in a generation we can do better, then we have to move up that level. That image of God, that means a word of possibility, a word of dignity, a word of kindness, a word of empathy, that's choosing life. And a word of degradation or dismissal or put down is a denial and a maximizing of death rather than of life. And so this is the guideline. I'll give you another example in terms of speaking. The classic case of Lashon Haram, many people who refer to this law don't understand evil speech. What's evil speech? The paradox of Lashon Hara is, I'm telling a truth. I tell about this person that he is a swindler or he's a crook or he has misbehaved. What makes it Lashon Hara? I tell it not to somebody who needs to know it because they need the protection. This man was about to go into a business deal with me. You have to tell me he's a swindler because I will be hurt if I don't know that. But if this person had nothing to do with me and had nothing to do with my need to know, that if you tell me that this person is a swindler, you're not telling me anything I need to know. You're simply degrading the quality, the dignity of that person. That makes it a prohibition. It's a speech that degrades life or maximizes death. And therefore it is wrong speech. And that speech that one could go on, every aspect of life <laughs> can be studied to maximize life. We now become conscious of the fact that driving that driving has a fire crop or traveling by has a carbon footprint. And therefore, what are we doing when we drive cars, gasoline fired cars? The answer is we're maximizing carbon pollution, which costs lives by degrading the health of living things. 
and causes further pollution and global warming that threatens even more destruction and more life. And so the new application, the further application of the principle of life is to now stop and weigh my carbon footprint. How do I minimize it? Whether it be electric car, whether it be use, whether it be using mass transportation rather than cars precisely for the reason of minimizing carbon footprint and so on and so forth. So the truth is the dynamic frontier of halacha right now is in every area, how can we maximize either life or quality of life? I'll give two examples. Again, one is in terms of women. Again, in the Torah's vision, in the Garden of Eden, men and women are both images of God. That means they're both equal. That means they're all of infinitely valuable, that each one is unique and should be respected as such. But in history, what's the truth? The truth is that women were second sex, that they were enablers, that their lives were cheaper and less protected. Uh, there's a classic UN study done some 15 years ago in East Asia that showed from the birth numbers to grown adulthood, there was a deficit of 150 million women because the girls were born, but then when they grew up, they were given less care. They were not sent to doctors when they were sick, when the sons were where they were not given education where the sons were, and so on. So that out of the degradation of women's life, their lives literally were forfeit. And so again, what are we living through in our time? This is the challenge and the positivity of feminism. What it's saying is the balance between full dignity, full equality for women can now be shifted toward, and I'll start with the Jewish tradition, toward greater women's learning, toward women's leadership, toward women's capacity to be rabbis, maharat, whatever the, the title we call them, toward women being lay leaders. In short, not because men are any less, but because we are trying to extend the basic principle that in our choice of leaders, we are maximizing the quality of life, both of men and women, and we are minimizing death or degradation of life, which takes place when women are sheltered, <coughs> blocked from leadership, Denied access to full equality and full dignity. And one could go on. How about sexuality? The Torah's message is that sexuality is one of the most powerful forms of communication. One of the most powerful forms of humans relating to each other. And therefore, just like words, they must reflect the truth that I am an image of God and I'm dealing with my beloved who is an image of God. That means to respect their value, their uniqueness. And so what is sexuality? It's another way of expressing my true feelings. So the Torah says sexuality, well, the tradition says, sexuality that expresses relationship, that deepens my understanding, my feeling, my empathy, my respect, that gives pleasure and dignity and value and joy to the person that I am sexually caressing, teaching, kissing, hugging, What's intercourse in the biblical language? Yadoa, to know the person totally. It's when my body, my emotions, my mind are all together focused and we fuse together. We connect to each other in the most powerful way. Empty sexuality, routine, abusive. Sexuality reflects no feelings. It's simply a physical exercise. Is a denial of the value of life. And it so... 
that is the point of promiscuity, it's a degradation of the image of God. That's the point of pornography. It denies the uniqueness of each individual and of each individual person. And so in every area one has to stop, this is the halakhic claim, to stop, assess, how can I maximize the uniqueness of this other person in speaking to them, in loving them? And I come to the question of gay sexuality and make the exact same point. For thousands of years, maybe, people saw this as a kind of a deviant, willful, instead of choosing a, a family, a natural connection, somehow it was willful and arbitrary and violation of that. And so it was denied and rejected. We now understand that it has, in fact, a genuine biological gene and, and hormonal basis, and that therefore it's a minority experience, but it's a genuine and real experience. And therefore, it seems to me, one has to apply the exact same principle. What makes gay sexuality legitimate, authentic, and proper is that it reflects relationship, that it builds dignity. The same-sex marriage movement far from being a denial, I would argue, is an affirmation of classic values that one of the goals of sexuality is to build permanent relationships, that one of the expressions of sexuality is to create new life and to have family life. And so we're living in a time where I would argue again, where the proper application of halakha, of Jewish values, this applies not just to Orthodox Jews. I'm arguing we want to be guided by the Torah by the tradition, and we want to help the tradition move and grow toward fuller life choices, toward greater dignity for the image of God, and for greater equality, be it for women, for minorities, for sexual minorities, for skin and color minorities, and one could go on. So what's my summary of this whole position? My summary was simply this, that the ideal of being a Jew is in every action, not only to work for the long-term upgrade of society, for greater justice, for care for the vulnerable, the sick, for the homeless, for the needy, for those who are marginalized, but as an individual, every personal act, every personal choice, that I stop and maximize that choice of life, that choice of quality of life, that affirmation of the quality of life, not just of me, but of the person I'm in touch with but of the person who's in my community, by the person who's in my workplace, by the person who is in my society and my life. So I'll finish with the obvious law that maybe I should have started with, but to me it captures the main point I'm trying to make, that life is the overriding, the overriding value of Jewish tradition. And maximizing life is the overriding value. And we have the classic case, which already the Talmud pointed out, that to save a life, one should override every commandment of the Torah because the Torah was given to increase life. If fulfilling this particular commandment, say Shabbat, by not doing medical activity, endangers life, it's a mitzvah to override because the Shabbat came to deepen life, to give us a day of full living, a day of relationship rather than of work, a day in which we develop the inner life, in which we relate to family and inner life, rather than go out to change the external world, which it's a mitzvah to do. But here's a mitzvah to set aside time to the deepest levels of personal relationship and human love. 
And so the ultimate value of the Torah is expressed in the idea that we literally override all the commandments, except the three, which themselves, if you override those commandments, you'd be undercutting life. But short of that, every other commandment is either overridden to save life or is in the version that I'm trying to communicate here now. It means that right now, every decision in terms of is this a mitzvah or not should be guided by the question of in practicing this action, eating, sleeping, drinking, exercise, speaking, loving, take any exercise, working, we have to look at it and say, how do we maximize the dignity, the value, the quality of life? And by that, we guide ourselves to the rules of work and the workplace. By that, we guide ourselves to the rules of marriage and the home. And if we will put life first, that becomes the overriding dream of Judaism. That in this generation, I put life first to the extent possible, although it may not live up to the whole, the greatest ideal. But combine this, each generation does this, each generation moves up if it can, and combine this with the long-term push for social improvement, for world repair. Together, the Torah insists, or Jewish tradition insists, together in partnership with God, we can literally achieve the triumph of life. A world in which life wins out over all its enemies, poverty, hunger, war, etc., in which life is supreme, and no life, and that includes human life, flourishes by destroying or degrading other forms of life. Anyway, that's a full-time job for living. Wonderful. I'm arguing that is the goal that we are called upon to realize in a, and to move forward in our generation. Thank you, Rav Yitz. Thank you so much. Um, Rav Yitz, do you have a pen on you? I do. So with your permission, what I'd like to do is welcome a number of voices in the room to ask a question, and then you can just respond to what you wish to at the end. Is that okay? Great. Thank you. Okay, great. So please, friends, unmute yourself, and we'd love to hear um, a question you'd like to share. Given our tight time, if you can make this, the question short, that would be appreciated. Um, I want to ask something, and I don't mean to be controversial, but if we're supposed to choose life, I wonder where abortion fits in if the life of the woman and the health of the woman is at stake. Thanks, Joan. Great, great question, Joan. Thank you. Someone else? Yes, how do we, how do we address the death penalty? Oh, good. Okay, Lois asked about the death penalty. Great. Yes, hi, Rav Yaakov. I just wonder, many of the behaviors and, and, and programs that Rabbi Greenberg mentioned, while they're Jewish, they're also very universal. We should, all humanity should devote themselves to this. It, does this mean that there are, where, what is the importance we still attach to what I'll call specifically Jewish behaviors, a.k.a. mitzvot? Um, it, it, how do they live together? Is it fair to compartmentalize? Is there a continuum? And I'm just intrigued to hear how what the role of specific Jewish behaviors is going to be. Thank you, Rabbi Chaitovsky. We have Lauren Blatt and then Judy Schaffer. Hi, Lauren. Hi, sorry about that. Um, just one quick question. I mean, all of this, we can do it as ourselves, in our own lives, our own behavior. Um, I'm thinking of, of the environment 
what more can we do? Because, you know, each one of us is just a drop in the ocean, but we seem to be living in a world just, just doesn't care. So how, what more can we do besides our own behavior? Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, Judy. Hi. Uh, my question is, how do we deal with those Torah portions and uh, Joshua stories where God says, go in and slaughter all the people who live in Canaan? Okay, thanks, Judy. Anyone else? Okay, uh, wonderful. I'm sure there are many more questions, but that is certainly enough to deal with, uh, to start with at least. So Rav Yitz, we'll pass it back to you. I'll try to move fast, so maybe there's time for further questions if people want to. So there were, first of all, they're excellent questions. And let me just, because uh, I saw on the chat room, people asked about documents. I didn't use it during the lecture, but I did provide a set of documents, which I call the Triumph of Life Principle, to show really how this theme of life and choosing life and so on really runs through the whole tradition. A hundred examples, the 30 categories, but a hundred examples. So that's also available. You can get that from Alex uh, from the, the documents afterward. Now the questions. First question was abortion. It's an excellent question. And again, it's, uh, well, and, um, number one, we'll start with the main point, which is abortion, as I say, it's not, it's been falsely presented as pro-choice or pro-life. And I'm arguing that in, in fact, um, it was, I put a Facebook posting uh, so I can call your attention to that if you want to take a look at it. It's really not a question of pro-choice against pro-life. It's pro-quantity of life as against pro-quality of life. What the anti-abortionists are saying is one, that the fetus is alive and fully human from the moment of conception. Now that is Catholic and some evangelical theologies. It's not Jewish theology, meaning that Judaism judges and as medicine does, by the way, that it's not a full life from the moment of conception, the Talmud speaks of first 40 days, particularly as being, a, it's just, if you lose it, it's just like losing water. It's not life. Now, it does say that the fetus, tradition says fetus is potential life. But even potential life is not the equivalent of full life. And certainly not, and this is your point, your question, certainly not when it threatens the life of the mother or in the means. Now, historically, Judaism was restrictive on abortion, but it permitted it. And in particularly, and not only permitted it, it required it to protect the mother's life. What about in contemporary life when there's been a, a broadening, when, for example, people may choose abortion because a having a child now would ruin their life. It's a teenage unwed mother. How about if the child has serious and grave defects, which will overmaster the parent's capacity to handle it? And so on. My answer is that is a legitimate affirmation of choice of life. And I put it even more positively. Ideally, again, I hope it'll never become standard or routine because in fact, it is potential life. And I think in permitting it, one weakens some of the taboo and special feelings around the sanctity of life we're supposed to have. Having said that, what abortion advocates are saying is that the quality of life of the mother, she can't handle it. Well, the quality of life of the child 
which is defective, and the mother and the parents will be overmastered by this. This is a very central value in our tradition, and it should be upheld and respected. Now, there's a second set of issues. I don't want to ignore them about women's choice in terms of their freedom and who makes the decisions about their bodies. And I, I would affirm that's by spec too. But I'm speaking now of the narrow sense of the primacy of life. My answer is that pro-abortion is pro-quality of life. And what's really saying is that no child should be born whose parents are not fully committed and feel wanted and able to handle this life and to raise it with all the dignity and value it's entitled. So again, I, I reject the notion that it's choice against pro-life. It's, are you advocating quality of life? Once it's conceived, you can't stop it, even if in fact there are serious flaws and drawbacks. Or was we saying, you have a right to intervene to maximize the quality of life of the parent and of the child. Second question, death penalty. Again, it was a very astute and good question. The answer is that the Torah is full of death penalties. And why? Because the rabbis felt that the Torah was trying to draw a line. In a society which didn't give enough respect for life, the only thing they felt that could really protect life is to get people literally to punish them with death if they murder or if they do many other acts that would weaken the quality and the capacity for life. Now, when the rabbis came along, they said, we think that now we've accomplished that people have a much greater sense of reverence for life and of the sanctity of life. And therefore, death penalty now has a mixed, if not negative impact, namely because the authorities are putting a person to death. Now, admittedly, whether you like it or not, it's a, in order to uphold the or respectful life, nevertheless, if the authorities are putting to death, they're weakening the sense of the absolute sanctity of life. And so the rabbis, put it bluntly, set out to restrict, if not to abolish death penalty. I say to restrict or not, or not, uh, or, or abolish it. The truth is that the Talmud develops a set of rules and practices and legal things and made it almost impossible to convict of the death penalty. And then at the very end of this whole process, when they've, they restricted the death penalty so much that the Talmud says every death penalty had to go to the Supreme Court before it could be upheld and executed. Then the Talmud says, you know what? If the Supreme Court once in seven years, and according to another rabbi, once in 70 years upheld the death penalty, it became known as the bloody Supreme Court. Whereas they had made death penalty so rare that a Supreme Court that would practice it would be seen as a bloody one. Nevertheless, there's the punchline. And so the Talmud ends this discussion and Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tavan says, never mind 70 years. If we were on the Sanhedrin, there would never be a death penalty. To which Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel, the head of the Sanhedrin said, I'm sorry, if you were on the Sanhedrin and there was no death penalty, you would increase murder in this world. So the Talmud doesn't end with a full resolution, but it's very clear the main thrust. The main thrust was that death penalty is evil. It has a good intention, but it has evil side effects, and therefore it should be reduced, reduced to an absolute minimum, if not totally eliminated. I give the example of the state of Israel. 
where death penalty has never been practiced. There was one exception, and that was Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the six million murder, who was put to death. But that again, I'm just saying that as an example, in every other way, even terrorists are not put to death because of the reverence for life and the desire to uphold its value. And the authority should not contribute in any way to weakening this reverence for life. Third question, the Jewish distinct behavior is a very important question. I, I, asking, I give me a chance to clarify what I'm saying. First of all, I, I am saying that Judaism is meant to be not just for Jews, but to show a model for the whole world. We see ourselves as part of the partnership. So yes, all the Jewish rulings that I mentioned, which have universal implications, are meant to be role models, meant to be examples. And yes, the best way to inspire people to higher value living is by example. So the Jewish vision dream of ourselves is that we're a role model, that we, first of all, we have a lot of work to do to make our own society ideal, but then the ideal should be maintained. Now, what about the distinctive values, whether it be Shabbat, whether it be kosher, whether it be a particular holiday? My answer is those distinctive behaviors, A, they also try to teach us reverence for life, respect for life, Passover, for example. Well, obviously, some of freedom and says that slavery is unnatural and should be eliminated and so on and so forth. One could go down the list. So my answer is number one, even the distinctive practices are teaching the universal message. And B, a very important point, the truth is our dream of universal morality or universal upholding of life is not meant to be uniform. What we're saying is that this is our model and therefore, our distinctive models are what makes Jewish Jewish. And that's an important contribution. So let Christians, let Muslims, let secularists, let Buddhists develop Buddhist models or secular models. So the distinctive job, even though we're on the same goal of universal, the universal will be far more respectful of human dignity if it recognizes diversity. If it doesn't end up with uniformity, but universal commitment to the value of life itself. Um, and of course, the distinctive values reflect the creativity and the history and the particularity of Jewish life. And that's also a very important part of the richness and dignity of being a Jew. And I would hold the same would be true for every other religion. Fourth, fourth question, environment. Now, again, I share some of your despair because right now it looks to us like the, the world is heading for, you know, for a global warming that will not be stopped in time. And you sort of begin to feel, what can I do, just one person? So the answer, of course, is you have to do two things. And one of my reasons for admiring Rav Shmuley so much is that he is a living example. The best, number one in my own life, start with that. Don't underestimate that. My ability to minimize carbon footprint, to not waste water, to not to recycle, etc., is significant. Even though it's limited, it's significant. And secondly, then I make partnerships, then I join communities, then I join organizations, then I find like-minded people, and together we campaign. And the truth is, I think right now our despair is a little overdone because it's late, and it may be, God forbid, too late, but we see a much greater responsiveness a much greater awareness of the issue than there was 10 years or 20 years 
or 30 years ago. I'm still hoping that humanity, which has just been awakened and is getting up, gearing up, can still put its act together and both technologically remove or reduce warming carbon and also improve its own quality of life. So I don't think it's a lost cause yet. So rather than give in to despair, we have to do both. We have to intensify, make even more rigorous our own personal care about the environment and recycling and so on. And at the same time, join and actively support organizations that are in fact determined that are already successfully moving the world off its present state toward I file a higher choice. It's a race and I don't want to guarantee the outcome. I wish I could, but I think it's a real possibility. And of course I do feel again, the Jewish community should set itself higher goals and should try as a community to show other people you can do the most and the best possible. Last question, what do I do with the Torah's verses of, thank you for Judy Shafford's comment. She reminds me of the famous covenantal truth, which we all should never forget. You are not required to finish the job. You're only required to start, but you're not exempt from starting. And yes, it's true. We may not accomplish it even in my generation, but we can and should and can do it. So by all means, start. The last question was, what do I do with the verses where they told go in and wipe out men, women, and children? And the answer is, it's very painful to read. The only justification I can offer is, again, I try to say, the guidance of the Torah was in the context of its time, in the context of its time. And so I'd like to believe that the barbarism, the barbarism, the cruelty, and the vicious uh, behavior of the local population is what, and the fear that the Jews would imitate them is what led to these extreme instructions. These extreme instructions certainly are no longer valid or valuable. And that's my point again. We have two Torahs, Rabbi say One is the written Torah and one is the oral Torah. The oral Torah is the continuing application. And let me stress that again. The whole vision is a covenantal vision. We have a dream of an ideal world and we have the present reality, and we move from present reality toward that ideal. In every generation, we have to review and seek we raise our standards. And so my answer is, in this generation, such a standard of wiping out the local population or enslaving them or taking the women and children would simply not meet the Torah standards anymore. And one of the fallacies of traditional or ultra-Orthodox so-called Jews is just that fallacy to see that the Torah is not a fixed and rigid set of verses. It is a direction and it is a journey that is not finished and every generation has to make its contribution. And yes, just as, as I'm saying, that we get, are not satisfied with the levels of leadership or opportunity given to women in previous generations, more power to them and in many cases they were better than the surroundings. But what have you done for me lately is our principle. We apply in every generation the best possible approximation closer to the ideal of full equality or full dignity. So uh, the, and the answer is certainly slaughter of civilian populations is no longer an acceptable or any sort of guidance as to what is proper behavior, as what is proper behavior from the point of religious truth. 
In fact, I always tell people, if you ask me for the Jewish code of ethics, I will refer you to the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. They have a code. It's a written code. It's called Torah HaNeshek, Purity of Arms. It's given to every soldier when they join the army in written form. They discuss it when they train them. They review these issues continuously. And the basic principle is, starts with the absolute sanctity of life. Even going to war is uh, shooting and killing people is only justified in defense when you have no other choice and no other way of saving this life and security of your people. That's the first principle. And the second principle is, if God forbid there's no choice, as for example, we see with Hamas where they place their rockets or their fighters in the midst of the civilians, then even there the answer is, this is to be done as last resort and in proportionality. For example, this happens all the time. If I can attack and kill this fighter or this terrorist or this terrorist leader, but they see at the last minute that he's surrounded by his family or by civilians, and therefore you'd kill more civilians than you would achieve by the killing of this terrorist, they'll scratch the mission. If uh, I give one other example, which Richard Kemp, the head of the British force in Afghanistan told, that the British and American force in Afghanistan made an all out effort to reduce civilian casualties because they wanted to win the respect and the support of the local population. He said they brought it down to three or four civilians killed in a normal war for every fighter that is killed. The Israelis in Gaza, where it's totally implanted in civilians, deliberately implanted in civilians, did an analysis of the dead in the last three fights, and it showed that they had brought it down to less than one civilian for every fighter. Now, it's tragic that you kill even one civilian, one innocent person, but that's my point. The ethic value in the real world is you do the best you can, and you keep working at it and working at it to reduce the numbers. So the answer is, that is another area where Jewish ethics and Jewish model can serve as a model for the world. But all of us have an unfinished job to continuously upgrade the, the choice of life and the quality of life and the respect for life. Uh, and that is both our mission and hopefully our example. Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Yitz. We wish you a wonderful night and good health and strength in Israel. And uh, thank you all so much for joining. Thank you, Rabbi Yaakov Chaitovsky, the BMHBJ uh, community for partnership. And we hope you all will continue learning with us this week in our many programs. God bless and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.